We've spent three sermons now, the last three times I've spoken, uh, reviewing a few things that are about to happen. And I want to carry that on forward today. Some of this will be review. We've been there before. Uh, and yet I think in the context of what I want to say and the scriptures I want to address today, uh, it's important that we perhaps review the background a little bit, especially for those out there who might be uh, new to us and are just now hearing and learning about some of the um, things we've taught about prophecy and what is about to happen in the nation and in the world and in the church, or the church first, of course. And I went through Haggai a little bit in Zephaniah last week, showing that there is a financial crash coming, that God's people will have to gather themselves together and are instructed to do that before the crash hits. I don't know how much time there is left between now and then, looking at uh, the whole world's economy. But God does say he will have a small, humble, afflicted people that he gathers out who will listen to him and that they are not to fear, but to sing songs of gladness, because God will protect and help them to do the job that he has for them to do. Then in the book of Haggai, it talks about the way the world is today, people doing their own thing, and in a world of materiality. And God says, most do not see that a temple of God must be built. They think that, I guess, we've past that with the work of Herbert Armstrong, and nothing is left to do along those lines. Uh, and then God points out that they have pockets with holes, and that in our inflationary period that we have right now, uh, that which you earn seems to just dissipate and go away, whether it be taxes, road taxes, uh, costs of goods going up, or whatever. I suspect the price of gasoline is going to go up again. Uh, as oil went to a record high of over $84 a barrel just yesterday. So everything is going to continue to go up. When the price of corn and wheat goes where it is gone, and it's not done going up yet, then the price of everything will go up. So God says, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing, and is it an exercise in futility when he has a far more important project going on than our material wealth. We're in a materialistic society. God knew that would be the case, and that it is very difficult for us to get off the things, the goo-gaws that we might want and enjoy in this physical life, but God says that should not be the emphasis. Preparing the way for Christ is the emphasis. So it says that in Haggai, and we're going to go, maybe before the day is through, to the book of Ezra, where I've been threatening to go now for some time, uh, and we'll see a story laid out there which fits very much with Haggai and with uh, the church today. However, I want to review a bit in the book of Zechariah, uh, because as I stated last week, Zechariah began his message right in the middle of Haggai's message. So it's something that came out of the story that Haggai was inspired to give 
and that is that a latter temple must be built and outshine in glory that which came before. And it is all an end-time story with old men in the church able to see the difference between the two. What we have to build has to be far better than what we had before. I've said that before, and I think it needs to be uh, emphasized that on a spiritual level, you and I have to become far beyond and above what we have ever achieved before. We have to redouble the effort, put on white garments, prepare ourselves as a bride of Christ, and be on a higher level spiritually than we have ever been. There are those who look back with ideas that Worldwide Church of God was the ideal, but that was the epitome of godliness. <laughs> and yet God himself, at his own word, blew it apart because it was Laodicean, naked and blind, and was not what it ought to be. God does say, I was somewhat displeased, and then when the heathen came in, I became sorely displeased in Zechariah 1.15. And he admonishes us before that in chapter 1 not to be like our parents, our forefathers, and those who came before us even in the end-time church, not listening to what is being said, but that we are to keenly listen and hear. We had quite a bit in the sermonette about ministry and prophets and, prophets and so on, whom God had, has raised up over time, and that we're supposed to listen to them. And your head has to be, your mind, completely sidetracked to believe that that is not the case and that that is the way God works and that we don't need a ministry today. You, you simply cannot read the Bible and maintain that honestly. Can't be done. That is a carnal way of saying, I will not listen to men. God has always supplied men. In fact, it was even said in the sermonette that when God spoke directly, because most people who don't want to listen to men say, I want to talk directly with God. But when God talked directly to the people, they don't want to hear any more of that. Enough is enough now. Let us hear Moses. Now you can deny all you want that God has provided men to speak, as weak and insipid as men may be. But if you deny it, sooner or later, you will speak directly with God. You had better brace yourself. <laughs> because if you think we speak strongly, harshly, powerfully, Wait till you hear him. And it will not be in a pleasant context. They haven't denied you, Samuel. They've denied me. They denied Samuel, didn't they? Didn't want to hear Samuel. Didn't want to hear what he said. You know, Samuel was directly inspired by God himself. He really was. Men do not like to hear from God 
period, whether it be directly from his voice or someone he sends, mankind carnally does not want to hear God. Everything in our psyche, everything in our mind and emotions is against God. That is our problem. As Paul wrote, you are carnal, sold under sin. You have bought into, sold yourself to sin. We have become slaves of sin. And we are to be repenting of that. How so? We don't want to hear that which would make us change. We want to cling to what we are and how we've been. The carnal mind is enmity against God, his ways, and his words. So, if you want to know if you have a carnal mind or not, honestly examine yourself and see if you fight against doing things God's way. If you do, you have a normal mind, which is a carnal mind. Carnal sounds so bad, but it really just means fleshly, meaty, human. It is naturally against God. So he says, don't be like your fathers, the prophets. Listen carefully. Now, God is going to provide leadership for the church at the end. We've all seen Micah 4, which says, Is your counselor dead? Is your king perished? Or I think it's the other way around. And we find ourselves in a travail of birth spiritually to try to produce Christ in us, the hope of salvation, to look and act and walk in the spirit instead of in the flesh, as we are tending to do. And yet God says that in this period of a dearth of leadership, he is going to provide leadership. Now there are dozens and dozens, perhaps hundreds of men around the world who have been a part of the church of God over the years who feel that they are that leadership. And I suppose they would not be running churches or being involved unless they felt that they were part of the leadership that God has put here. But, Zechariah talks about big churches falling, ministries falling, like trees out of the forest are being cut down, Zechariah 11. He talks about those who would lead us in wrong directions in many scriptures. So what we have here is a problem. We have to find out where the truth is being spoken because God will cause it to be spoken somewhere. Now, who, who will provide the leadership? Zechariah 2, we see that God will pull his people out and that they will build towns without walls, and God calls those towns compositely Jerusalem. He will protect them and be with them. And he tells us to come from the land of the north, that is, the Babylonian society around us, 
to get out of there and save ourselves and come to those little villages that God is going to bring up. Remember Haggai says that he is going to send leaders named Zerubbabel and Joshua and that he will bring, stir people to action to come and hear and listen and build in the temple. That's all through Haggai and then you'll find more of it in Zechariah 6. It says if we will diligently obey the word of God, that it will happen. That an end-time temple will be built in conjunction with these towns without walls. He says he will come and be among us in that day. Uh, then in verse 13 of chapter 2 in Zechariah, he says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Everybody pay attention. Be respectful. God has raised himself up to do the end time work. Then chapter 3 goes in and introduces one who is a leader called Joshua. Uh, now when we get to Ezra, we will find that there was a Joshua and there was a Zerubbabel there who went back from Babylon to build uh, the physical temple in Jerusalem and also, later with Nehemiah, the Jews who had been captive built the walls around the city. But he talks about a Jerusalem without walls at the end that is comprised of several small towns. Now this Joshua, uh, he says, Satan stood up to resist or witness against him because he had been quite sinful apparently. He was a brand plucked out of the fire. It was about to be burned up, and God plucked him out of the fire he had filthy garments and stood before the angel. And the angel answered and said, Take away the filthy garments from him. Remove the sin that clings to him. And to him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with change of raiment. So there is a change, a repentance that occurs, and clean garments then, garments of righteousness are given. God grants that ability and capacity and that uh, circumstance to be given to this Joshua. I said, let them set a fair mitre, uh, a clean turban on his head, and clothe them with garments, and the angel of the eternal stood by. The angel of the Lord protested to Joshua, saying, thus says the eternal of hosts, or, or warned him, protested against, or warned is, is the sense of it. Uh, thus says the eternal of hosts. This is a direct quote then from God to, through the angel to Joshua. Uh, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, my covenant, my laws, my ways, the things that I charge you with, in other words, in the word of God, then you shall also judge my house and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. So here is a promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God with a place to walk among those who are in the kingdom of God at the moment. So it says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest. So this individual is listed in the end as the high priest. This is a New Testament end-time prophecy. There is a priesthood not of Levi, but of Melchizedek, as Hebrews clearly points out. But here is a high priest listed at the end time, for those who might still say that there is not a priesthood or a ministry today.
I'm going to show you in a few moments, uh, after I laying this background, that this truly is an end-time prophecy regarding the leadership of the church at the end will help build the temple of God when God brings his faithful people together as a 10% remnant of the church. So he says in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. Uh, this individual will have uh, people who come and sit before him to learn, to hear. Uh, for they are men of wonder, or signs and wonders. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. The branch is indicated being Christ, number one, but a type of Christ is Zerubbabel, who is called the branch in several prophecies. So the branch can refer to Christ himself. It can also refer to he who comes uh, in the spirit and attitude of Christ himself. Remember, John the Baptist came as a type before Christ himself came. And Joshua, in this sense, is put as one crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 and 41, preparing the way before Zerubbabel comes, who is a direct type of Christ. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. You only have to go to Revelation 1, 2, and 3, Revelation 1 actually, to see that the seven eyes are the seven, represent the seven churches the eyes of the angels of the churches. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Very quickly. There are other scriptures in Isaiah and other places that God says that in one day he is going to remove our sin and turn and shine his face upon us. In that day, in the end of times, before the millennium, before Christ himself returns, in other words, here is one who has to do with the seven churches. And it says, In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So this is an agricultural society. Remember Zechariah 2 said, Build small towns without walls, and there will be much men and cattle there. So there will be cattle, and there will be vine and fig tree. God is going to give us a garden of Eden, a garden of God. In the time of, number one, Joshua here. It is going to occur in the end time. God is going to build a microcosm of the world tomorrow and the millennium so that the world may see ahead of time what shall be, and they will deny it and will have to die, most of them. God does not do anything without witnessing to the world. Now, there are going to be two witnesses, two men who do the major part of the preaching. But all of us who will be a part of the gathering that God brings are also called God's witnesses. He says his temple, his people, will be set on a hill and shine as a light that cannot be hid. It will shine as a beacon and a light to the whole world. What is the world today speaking of? They're speaking of the illumined ones, the Illuminati, or as George H.W. Bush Sr. put it, a thousand points of light. The elite of the world who will rule the world will be the light of the world, is the message of the New World Order. 
and what they plan to bring. They are counterfeiting, or Satan is, through men, what God says is going to be for his people, the true lights of the world, the true Latter-day Saints. There are false Latter-day Saints today They call themselves the Mormon. They're not saints of God. They are pagans. They do not follow God, and they do not know God. They know the God of this world, Satan the devil, and that's whom they follow. We are truly the Latter-day Saints, the saints of the latter day. I don't mean the non-Mormons in particular. All religions fit in that category. There just happened to be one of them and one of our close neighbors. So, God is going to raise up, it appears, a Joshua first, and that eventually there will be signs and wonders from the men there with him, and that he will have to do with the seven churches, and under him the villages where men will have their own vine and fig tree and cattle will be established. Then in chapter 4, we see another individual introduced here. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is awakened out of his sleep. I might review for a moment here something Herbert Armstrong told me in 1981. time he said, I'm Zerubbabel. Uh, he implied, he didn't say it outright, that his son Joshua, or <laughs> son Ted, who was filthy, uh, would be the Joshua. But Ted, so far as his dad is concerned, never repented. I don't know that he ever did. Maybe he did before he died. But those two are dead. And they did not build the latter temple. They oversaw the former temple, and it has been blown apart. But the only reason I bring this up is that Mr. Armstrong recognized that Haggai and Zechariah are end-time books. He, even though he mislabeled himself, thinking that he was going to see this whole thing through at the time, he recognized the end-time story here. And I think that's important to throw in uh, to church people as a whole, wherever they might be, that Herbert Armstrong certainly had this understanding, though he may not have known the characters. And I do not withhold the thought that he and his son may have been a minor type of this Joshua and Zerubbabel, in that they did build an end-time temple, but it was not the final one. It was the one to whom many people were called. The final one is going to be those who are chosen. And that is in the works right now. I believe those individuals are walking around. I believe they are teaching in the church. One of them is a direct type of Moses uh, in Malachi 4 and in the um, transfiguration where Moses and Elijah showed up and the disciples said, shall we build uh, a booth for them? Peace of Tabernacles time. There's a man who says he's going to train the two witnesses. Man, I wish he'd hurry up and get it figured out who they are. That's not the way God works. God trained Moses for 40 years, and Zerubbabel is the direct type of Moses. So I believe that God has been training a man who will be turned out to be Zerubbabel, 
for probably at least the last 40 years, or very close to it. Otherwise, you can't follow the pattern of the Scripture. It has to be that way, because that is the pattern God established. Can you hear me? raining a little harder here for those of you who are not here and listening on the phone. I'm sure you get it all right because it's going directly and electronically, but here it's uh, getting pretty loud. It's all right. We love the rain. But I want to dispel here in a moment the idea that the two witnesses just preach to the world because there's been a lot of focus over the years and who the two witnesses would be, how this would come about, how they would go before the world. And I don't think probably anyone really understood that that was not their first job. The first job is with the church. We saw that in Zechariah 3 with Joshua. There's a stone set with seven eyes. Christ, of course, is the cornerstone. And the seven churches are a part of the, or represent the church that he is the cornerstone of. So Joshua is immediately involved with the church. And that's as far as it takes it, doesn't it? Isn't it? Zechariah 3, do you see anything there about going to the world? No, you don't. It says, here's a man I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to use to preach to the seven churches whose cornerstone is Christ and use him to build Jerusalem without walls, which will be a place where people will have their own cattle and their own vine and fruit trees. So it has to do with the remnant of the church being brought together. All right, let's go on to chapter 4 then. So it's just like a vision as you are waking up. Uh, speaking here of Zechariah and the message that came to him. And it said to me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. Now, where do you see a description like that? Revelation 1 where the golden candlesticks refer to the churches. So here is a dream that Zechariah has that shows the candlesticks, which in prophecy and as explained in Revelation 1, represent the church. So the first mention here of who is going to turn out to be in a moment Zerubbabel is in connection with the church, not necessarily a message to the world. So answered and spoke to the angel, verse 4, that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Don't you know what these are? And I said, No. I wouldn't have asked if I knew. I didn't know. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. So this individual... Zerubbabel is not going to be a great man in terms of mankind in general, not by human or physical power and might, but by the Spirit of God. So God is going to raise up a man in whom his Spirit will dwell, 
And the power will come from God, not from man. Who are you, O great mountain, or government, or people? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. God is going to give such power that the governments of this world can be not flat. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it, or God's good favor and grace be given. This could be church governments as well, not just worldly governments, because so far we've talked about nothing but the church, the seven candlesticks and so on in the context. So when God raises up a leadership at the end time, it will have power, might, and strength over any other church governments, and they will become a plain or flattened before the power God will put in his church through Zerubbabel. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. So here again, hearkening back to uh, Haggai, where it says the temple of God will be built in the end time. And it's referring to that house, because remember, Zechariah began, this, began to have these dreams and this vision right in the middle of Haggai's presentation of what would happen with the temple of God. So it says, Zerubbabel has laid the foundations of this house. His hands also shall finish it. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So God is going to send a leader at the end who will lay the foundation of the house. It does appear to me from the context that for a period of time, Zerubbabel goes dormant that he faces up to a job and backs off. And then later on God says, you started it, you will finish it, and makes him do it, whether he feels he's qualified or not. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven they are the eyes of the eternal which run to and fro through the whole earth. He sends seven angels with their eyes to see the whole earth. They're referred to as the churches in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. So Zerubbabel will have to do with the church and the eyes of the eternal around the world. Now what Zerubbabel starts will apparently be a small thing. It won't amount to much. It won't be a major tree, a major church work. It's something that is small, and it will be despised. But God is going to supply the power at the right time, and he will become a powerful leader in the church. For those who think we don't need a ministry or a priesthood in the church today, what do you do with this? Now, I keep hearkening back to that, or harping on it, I suppose, and sermonettes and so on have been recently. Why? I think it has been stimulated by the fact that we have had a few, even here among us, who have left, who at one time thought that a ministry was needed, but then they didn't like certain things, whatever they may have been, and I won't get into that necessarily, 
but they then concluded we don't need a ministry. We don't need to be preached to. We can be our own. And have denied thousands of scriptures in so doing. You are here, and most of you, if you're here, believe that we need preaching. But so recently we had some here who were part of us who were gone because now they don't believe we need preaching and preachers. Now what good does it do to preach to the horse that's already out of the barn? None, whatever. Because the mind is set, the emotions are set, and you're not going to change it short of dynamite or the power of God, possibly through Zerubbabel and Joshua. He who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So it's not to them that I'm preaching. It's to you who are still listening that you don't go that way, that you don't misunderstand, that you don't find an excuse because of carnality. Normality, should I say. The normal human mind does not like to be preached to, does not like to be admonished, corrected, chastened in any form or fashion. It wants to do what it wants to do, think what it wants to think, and go its way. And if we think that way, we are yet carnal and not motivated by the Spirit of God, but by our own human mind, which is deceitful, desperately wicked, and is enmity to God. So we need to examine our hearts and see how much we're motivated by the Spirit of God and how much by normal human thinking, because we're all susceptible to it, day to day. All right, let's get some more explanation here then of what we're reading, because I've been saying some things and not yet proved them. Verse 11, Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? So he saw this golden candlesticks with the seven lamps and two olive trees standing there, two olive branches. He didn't know what they were. What are they? And I answered him again and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? Now, as an olive tree, we get oil from olives, from an olive tree. And oil represents the power, the spirit, the mind of God. So out of these two olive branches will be coming the words of God through his Holy Spirit, his oil. And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? Like it's a surprise that they wouldn't be able to put the story together. And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones, or sons of oil, that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. These are two who have been anointed with the oil of God, the Spirit of God, to empty the oil, the Spirit, out upon the churches. All seven candlesticks. 
Now, there is only one other place in the entire Bible that this expression is used. Now, before we go there, understand that the book of Zechariah culminates in the return of Christ, Zechariah 14, standing upon the Mount of Olives. So it is decidedly an end-time book having to do with the return of Christ to this earth. And the events in it are leading up to that moment. So it is very definitely an end-time book. Let's go then to Revelation 11. Chapter 10, there's... John saw, or was given a little book to eat, and it tasted sweet, but it made him his belly bitter. And I think that the meaning there is that he heard and read about and saw in vision in the book of Revelation about the churches, about the end time, about the return of Christ and the bride coming down from heaven in Revelation 21, and the Son and the Father coming with it to dwell on the earth among men. And that was sweet. But all the events between Revelation 1 and 22 made his belly bitter because there are some horrendous things that have to happen. So he went ahead and ate the little book, as told in verse 10. And then he was told, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now does that mean that the Apostle John is going to be resurrected and prophesy here at the end. He will be resurrected as one of the first fruits, be over one of the tribes of Israel and the world tomorrow, and he will then prophesy and teach to all peoples and nations wherever they may be. But I think that in this particular reference, in a let's say in a smaller context, uh, he was the last standing apostle. He represented... God on the earth as the last preacher standing, more or less, at least of the original ones. So he's addressing the church here and saying that you must preach again. Uh, then chapter 11 goes right on and shows that there will be not just John the Apostle preaching at the end, but two who will be raised up to speak. Let's see that in chapter 11 and see how this fits with Zechariah 4. There was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So this has to do with, A, the temple of God, the altar within the temple, the ministry, and them that worship therein, the laity of the church. That is the first thing that is addressed in Revelation 11. Just as in Zechariah 3 and 4, Joshua and Zerubbabel are shown involved directly with the church. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. So the message is to deal with the church the ministry, and the people that are there. And don't worry about the rest of the world, at least initially. Their first job is to the church and rebuilding the church. 
And God will stir the people to come as a remnant to do that very thing. We did not understand that years ago. We just pictured two men going all over the world in airplanes, uh, preaching that the end has come and repent or your blood will be turned to water. I mean your, <laughs> your water turned to blood. Then below that it says, verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So during the time <laughs> that the Gentiles are trampling the church, and the, the faithful have gone to a place of safety for 42 months, or a thousand or twelve hundred and sixty days, these men will then preach and have power. And then it explains who they are. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And that is a direct quote from Zechariah 4, verse 14. Those are the only two verses in the Bible that have any reference to each other in this context. So Zechariah 4.14 is speaking of these two anointed ones, these two olive trees who stand before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, just as Elijah did, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. I will not tie in Moses and Elijah directly here and go to all those scriptures, but withholding rain from the earth was an act of Elijah, and giving of the law and all was an act of Moses, and they are brought together in the book of Malachi chapter 4, is being these two at the end. And Joshua being cast as a type of John the Baptist, the latter day John the Baptist, crying in the wilderness. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now we're seeing here that God considers Jerusalem today Sodom and Egypt. There is no spiritual value in Jerusalem today, whatever. God will not take his people to that Jerusalem. That is not the Jerusalem where his people and his, are to keep his feasts. He says... In Zechariah 2, the Jerusalem shall be built as towns without walls. Small villages, no walls, God is the protection, and that is the Jerusalem of the end time where he will come and dwell and be with his people. There are those who think we need to go to Jerusalem, Palestine today to keep the feast or to build the temple of God. They are barking up the wrong tree. In God's view, it is Sodom and Egypt, not a place to go. 
Where in Scripture, in any context with Egypt, has God ever told His people to go to Egypt? Many Scriptures say, do not go to Egypt. What is God's viewpoint then toward Sodom and Gomorrah? Do not go to Sodom, get out of Sodom. No sodomy allowed. That place is not a place to go. It is Sodom and Egypt. These two prophets, it says in verse 10, torment the people that dwell on the earth. And when they die, there's going to be a great party held, and they'll be seen lying on the streets of, Jer of Jerusalem, on CNN and Fox and all these other news programs. And the world is going to throw a party and send happy emails and gifts to one another, saying we finally got rid of the last to deny us our new world order. And we will rule the world now. Three and a half days later, they're resurrected. Christ returns at the last trump, and they see their whole new world order dashed before their eyes. Because God's people will be resurrected and become the light of the world. Not just a hill and some small villages for a while, but the light of the entire earth. And the new world order will be absolutely crushed by Christ. So, God does provide leadership for his church in the end. I wanted to go back and review this story. Now we'll go to the book of Ezra. Don't have a whole lot of time left today to get into it, but we'll get started. <clears throat> Chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. So, the historical setting here is that Babylon had been destroyed. And the Medes and Persians had taken over the kingdom. You remember Belshazzar defiling the temple service that had been carried from the temple to Babylon and having a drunken orgy using the temple service, the cups and chalices and so on, of the temple of God, Daniel 5. I think we'll see before we're done here that that may very well occur again. But Babylon had been destroyed, and Cyrus, now is the king of Persia, was over the old uh, kingdom of Babylon, and in, that included Jerusalem, wherever that may have been. So this is to fulfill Scripture, the things Jeremiah had written. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdom of the earth, 
and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's very interesting, isn't it? Here was a heathen, pagan king who said he had been instructed of God to make sure the temple was built. Now, where did that come from? Remember now, Daniel had lived through to the end of the kingdom of Babylon, as Daniel clearly states, and was still there when Cyrus took over, when Babylon was taken captive. Now, Daniel knew the scriptures. He knew of Isaiah. He knew of Isaiah's message. And I suspect that what happened here I don't know that I can prove this, but I think considering the context and the time element, that Daniel must have gone to Cyrus and said, you know, you're mentioned in the scriptures of our God and that he, said, he prophesied that you would take over the kingdom of Babylon and that once you did you would be sure that the temple of God in Jerusalem was built. That must have been an awakening for Cyrus. This Hebrew God, this Jewish God, has said, I will build his temple with the Jews in Jerusalem. Probably got his vanity, his pride, his ego a little bit to say that, you know, here Isaiah prophesied back then that I would be and that I would build the temple in Jerusalem. Incredible. You know, anytime you find you might be, interest, be mentioned in Scripture, wouldn't you find it interesting if God had mentioned you long before you were born and that you would be? Well, in a way, he has, brethren. He prophesied long ago that he would raise up a people at the end, they would be first fruits, and that they would build the temple of God. So any of you whom God has called out for that purpose are already mentioned in Scripture, albeit not yet by name. I believe that probably when the book of Acts is finished, it's the only book there that is not closed with amen, because it isn't finished yet that those who are part of the temple of God, all 144,000 of them will be written at the conclusion of the book of Acts once these things are all done. Now I'll go on and show you that in a little bit if we get to it today, maybe to next week. Now let's go back and read what... Isaiah probably delivered to Cyrus. I know it was delivered to him. Whether or not it was Daniel that did it or not really is neither here nor there. It just seems like a likely uh, possibility and scenario. Now let's consider Isaiah, beginning with about chapter 40, where he says to comfort God's people and tell her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, for she received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is going to smash the church, spew it out of his mouth, which he has done now. Not quite done yet, there's still spittle dribbling, but it's basically done. 
And we've been under pretty hard times emotionally, trying to get this figured out. And then it says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Make a way. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. That which is prominent is going to be made unprominent, and that which is not prominent is going to become prominent. The crooked shall be made straight, we'll understand the truth, and the rough places plain. So there will come one in the end who is going to make things clear, who's going to straighten out a lot of spiritual issues. We know that Elijah is said is restoring truth. There is still a lot of truth that has not been straightened out. There is still a lot that has to be made straight. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. There is a time coming when a voice will cry out of the desert in the wilderness, as John the Baptist did, and as a result, ultimately, as the rough edges are knocked off and the truth is known, God's glory is going to be revealed. Remember that thought, because we're going to see it in connection with Cyrus in a moment. I go back this far to show that there is both a spiritual change, where the rough and the rugged are going to be plain and straight, and with Cyrus... Physical things are going to be straightened out and made plain and straight to him. So there is a physical and a spiritual parallel that fit together here between Isaiah 40 and 45. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? What shall I trumpet? What shall I say? And it is that all flesh is grass and all the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. So this is an end-time prophecy when God is going to start blowing upon this earth and mankind is going to wither like grass in a hot wind. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. His glory is going to be revealed at the end. O you that bring good tidings to Zion, get you up into the high mountain. O you that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, that bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. This is something that has to be preached at the end. That Zion and Jerusalem are going to have good tidings, good news. That everything is going to turn out right. It's going to be beautiful. Look to God. Behold God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He's starting a work that is going to culminate in the return of Christ, who will treat the world like a shepherd carrying lambs in his bosom. It's a strong message that has to be done before that. Then it goes on in the rest of this chapter and talks about how all nations are before him as nothing, verse 17, that he is going to sit upon the circle of the earth from the horizon, verse 22, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers, can be wiped out. That brings the princes to nothing in verse 23. 
Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One? No one can equal the power, the might, the strength of Christ when he sets his hand to do what he said in Zechariah 2, and that is raise up and do his work. There will be those who think they can hide from him. They can't, verse 27. And then he says in verse chapter 41, Keep silence before me, O coastlines and people. Let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Come up to judgment. If God is going to raise up a righteous man from the east, call him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and I think that is a, uh, a prophecy of Zerubbabel, man who will come from the east, and he will come, therefore, to the west, and we're speaking of this nation, and I'm not going to go into all the proof of that at this point. We've been there. And when this happens, the earth is going to fear. Revelation 11 will start to be being fulfilled. Great power from God to show His glory. But He says to God's people then, Be of good courage, verse 6, and encourage one another as you work to build the temple of God. Uh, you've been chosen, verse uh, 10, don't fear, I will help you. Uh, verse 11, behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded, whether their waters turn to blood or plagues come on them or whatever. Uh, those that strive with you shall perish. Remember flames coming out of the mouth and killing them if they try to strive against. You shall seek them and shall not find them, even those that contended with you. They're going to be dead. God is going to show his great power. Verse 13, For I, the eternal your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Don't fear, worm Jacob. Remember, you're just a worm. But God is on your side. And even worms can show power and might if God supplies it. And you'll thresh the mountains like it says in Micah 4 as well. Same context, what it's talking about. Then he's going to open up rivers and high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. Verse 18, he'll plant in the wilderness seven trees, I think representing the seven churches. Remember, Joshua and Zerubbabel have to do with the seven churches. That they might see, verse 20, and know and consider and understand together. Uh, verse 22, let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. So he's saying right here, all those things that happened in the past, if you study them, are just a pattern, a picture, a prophecy of what will happen in the latter end. So the prophets of old can be compared with what they did to the prophets at the end. What happened in the temple and the church before is going to happen again. All these things in the prophecies have to do with right now and the next five to ten years. The latter end. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you were God's. And then the world has to say, we don't know these things. They don't understand the scripture, they don't understand history, and therefore they won't understand what is about to happen. Verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, probably going to have been born in the north of this nation. He'll come from the rising of the sun. Born in the north, he'll come from the east. 
He shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and the potter treads clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know these things? And before time, ahead of time, that we may say that this man who comes from the east is righteous. How do we know this? Yes, there is none that shows, yea, there is none that declares, yea, there is none that hears your words. The first shall say to Zion, I think this is referring to Joshua, first of the two witnesses, he will first say to Zion, to the church, Behold, behold them, the two. One will come saying, Behold the two, and I will give Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. So it says, there aren't any people around, but I will provide one that will bring good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, there was no counselor. Remember, our king is dead, our counselor is perished, Micah 4. That when I asked of them, could answer a word. They just don't know. The ministries, the churches, don't know what is going to transpire. They can't say and when I ask of them, could answer, they couldn't answer a word. They are all vanity, their works are nothing, their molten images are wind and confusion. There will come a time in the church where all the leaders are going to be speaking wind and confusion. There will be one who will be telling the truth. God is going to provide, believe it or not, a preacher and then preachers who will tell the truth. Now, we can prove very easily that there need to be preachers, but there are false and there are true. This is a story here that God says is going to happen. Now, you had better find whoever this is speaking of. We need to know. We had better find out. your eternal life will likely depend upon it. God is going to work through those two. He is not going to work through anyone else other than those who are attached to those two that will be used to thresh the earth and the nations and go out before the Assyrian when he comes into our land, Micah 5. This is the true story. It goes on and declares several times, and I, th I think that this ties in with what I said about Zerubbabel being out to lunch for a while, chapter 42, verse 19. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is mature, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but he doesn't observe them opening the ears, but he doesn't really hear and understand everything. <laughs> the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He's a righteous, upstanding man, but he doesn't understand and see a lot of things that he needs to see and understand. He will at one point. So he said, your hands have started building the foundation. They will finish it. The blinders will be removed from the eyes and he will be able to hear and see. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. It's a type of Moses. 
magnifying the law. How do you magnify it? You keep it, but you also preach and teach it, is how you magnify it. You give the sense and the understanding, as it says in Nehemiah. Then he says again, chapter 43, Don't fear, I've redeemed you, called you by my name, you're mine. Verse 5, Fear not, I'm with you. I'll bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That ties in with Haggai, the people being stirred to come from all over the earth. Zechariah 6, where it says they'll come from far to work in and build the temple if we will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal. For everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. There are going to be people who are going to suddenly wake up and realize what's going on. A 10% remnant. And they will come to build the temple of God. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. So God says that we who come to build the temple will be his witnesses. Not just two, but a whole remnant of God's church who will come together to be his witnesses. Verse 12, I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. What are the two witnesses witnessing? What are we as a church witnessing? The witness, the testimony that we give is that God is God. The glory of the Eternal shall be revealed. Isaiah 40, we just read. Verse 14, thus says the eternal, your Redeemer, the one that's going to bring us out of this world, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and all the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships, the merchant ships. Read Revelation 17 and 18. I will not go back through the whole thing, but I quote from the series on Babylon, the United States is the current Babylon which will be destroyed. It is the great whore. It is not the Catholic Church. It's the great whore. It is America. And the beast and the false prophet hate her and kill her. In the past, we thought of the great whore and the false prophet as both being the Catholic Church. Well, one kills the other. Does the Catholic Church kill the Catholic Church? Doesn't make sense. Now, the great whore is this merchant nation that has made the whole earth wealthy. It will be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. End of Revelation 17. God is going to destroy Babylon before us. And this is right in the end time context of preaching to the world, preaching to the church, bringing the church together, and Babylon will be destroyed before our very eyes. Verse 19, I will do a new thing, and it shall spring forth. You shall not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give to drink my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And then he says he's tired of sin and sickness and iniquity in verse 24. 
Verse 27, your first father has sinned. Your teachers have transgressed against me. Herbert Armstrong did sin. The ministry did transgress against God. God spewed it out of his mouth. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. He says, yet now listen, in spite of all the destruction that has occurred, listen. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Eternal that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, uh, whom I have chosen. Another word for Israel, the upright. He's going to work through a people. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your seed and my blessing upon your offspring. Verse 7, And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. God says, I started a long way back with the ancient people, the Anasazi, if you will, the ancient ones, and I've worked forward to today. And who's going to declare it for me? And shall come and let them show it to them. Fear you not, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time, and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. So God is going to call together a small remnant of his church to rebuild the church, and they're going to show the glory of God. And the glory of God shall be revealed. Here's one I quoted earlier, verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you from this evil, stinking, rotten society of culture that you've loved so much. Sing, O you heavens, for the eternal has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree therein. For the eternal has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Now, let's pick up the story here because... In the context, this shows God bringing forth leaders who will make the rough, straight, uh, the crooked places plain. Speaking of spiritual leaders, now we're going to see a change in this. Let's go on. Verse 24 of Isaiah 44. Thus says the Eternal, uh, I, I guess I read that, verse I'm God, he says, that frustrates the tokens of the liars, verse 25, and makes diviners mad. They have their ideas of what's going to happen, but I drive them crazy. That turns wise men backward and make their knowledge foolish. Now, God, then, is in this context of his witnesses at the end going to make the knowledge and the wisdom of this world look foolish. Anything that is the accepted wisdom of the society and culture of the world is going to be made to look stupid, foolish. Now, I'm emphasizing that because I'm going to show you right here how he's going to do it. Okay? That confirms the word of his servant. Now, what word is he talking about here? We've just read chapter 40 through 44 showing that there will come one in the desert crying in the wilderness that God is God and that God's arm is going to be revealed. Okay? 
that confirms the word of Zerubbabel and of Joshua, which is going to be preached, and performs the counsel of his messengers that says to Jerusalem, that is, A, to the church, as we know from Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, that Zion and Jerusalem are in type the church. But we're going to find that there is a physical application here in the next few verses, and it is also talking to physical Zion and physical Jerusalem, wherever they may be, because Zechariah tells us that at some point they will be rebuilded in their original places, in her own place. He performs the counsel of his messengers. God is going to do the things we've read about in chapter 40 up to this point. It says to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that which has been destroyed. Jeremiah 9.11 says that Jerusalem would become a den of dragons in the cities of Judah without inhabitant. <laughs> That has not happened to date in Jerusalem, Palestine. Is there something else then that this might be referring to? I think we'll know fairly soon. That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, and I'll raise up the decayed places. That says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. So wherever this original Jerusalem may have been, there may have been seas and rivers around it that have since been dried up, have not been inhabited. That says of Cyrus, now there's, here's where Cyrus is introduced, in an end-time context having to do with the building of the latter temple under the leadership of the two witnesses. That says, uh, that says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. God is going to raise up a Cyrus at the end who will perform the pleasures of God, will do the things God wants done. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now we've already talked about spiritual leaders who are going to raise up the spiritual temple at the end in Zechariah 3 and 4 and in Isaiah 40 among other places we have not gone. But this is a physical man who is not a part of the church, as we shall see, who has a part in saying to Jerusalem, you'll be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now is this a physical building of a temple in Jerusalem? It may well be. Let's read on. Chapter 45 of Isaiah. Thus says the Eternal who is anointed. So Cyrus has been uh, authorized or anointed of God to do certain things. <clears throat> and Daniel took this, I think, to the original king Cyrus, who then did some things we'll read about in Ezra 1 to be sure that the temple was rebuilt and that Jerusalem was restored. So it is something that happened in the past. Remember, we just read a verse that said that these things that have been written and done in the past are a, an example or a type of what will be done in the future. Isaiah is an end-time book. 
says to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. God has held his hand. God has been with him, in other words. To subdue, subdue peoples before him. And I will loosen the loins of kings. Uh, the the medial Persian empire was powerful. And when kings saw the king of the Medes and Persians, their loins were loosened. In other words, it scared them to the point they were about to wet themselves, to be blunt. This Cyrus, who will be raised up to the end, is going to come ultimately with such power that the nations, the kings, the rulers of this world are going to be terrified, just as they were then. To open before him the hinged gates, and the gates shall not be shut. God is going to open up before the end time Cyrus some gates that simply can't be closed. The world would love to shut them up. Now when the Medes and Persians diverted the Euphrates River and went in the river channel and into the walls of Babylon, the people of Babylon had felt so safe, like Americans do today, that they didn't even lock the gates. We're safe, nothing can hurt us. They swung those gates open, went in and took over the city overnight. And it says that the fall of Babylon in the end will come in one hour and one day. Very quickly, just like it did originally. Oh my. About out of time. <clears throat> so, once God opens up some things through this man Cyrus at the end, they can't be shut. You know, the Babylonians would have wished they could have gone and shut those gates, but the Persians were already there. It was too late. You know, once the horse is out of the barn, it doesn't do any good to shut the door. It's already happened. So once whatever the Cyrus is scheduled to do happens, you can't put it back in the barn. It's already done. Gates are open. I will go before you. God is going to march out ahead of him. And make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunders the bars of iron. So whatever has been constructed to hide is going to be cut open. God is going to break the bars and the bands that would keep Cyrus back from understanding and moving forward. He'll make the crooked places straight. Now this is a physical man, we'll see in a moment, who is not converted. So God is going to reveal truth through him? Well, in a sense, but physical truth, not spiritual truth. That is done in Isaiah 40 by a preacher who comes in the desert crying aloud and makes the spiritual straight. This man is involved with the physical. Okay? But he's going to straighten out some understanding of some physical things. I'll make the crooked places straight, and I'll break the gates, the bars, the brass, the iron that would have kept you from understanding and doing. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. So whatever was guarding the secret treasures of God and the riches of secret places are going to be removed, and Osiris will discover them. 
For what purpose? That you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So he's going to be working in tandem with the church to show the glory of God and who God is. God is going to work with a man who is a part of the world, but he leads to some physical treasures and secret things in darkness, and he's going to lead his spiritual ministry to preach the spiritual truths in tandem together. Now, we shall see that when Cyrus and Ezra provided the vessels of the temple of God, they weren't hidden. They weren't in secret places. And yet that Cyrus was a partial fulfillment of this scripture. Because Cyrus in Ezra 1 was quoting Isaiah. They didn't have to find this. It wasn't hidden. It was in the warehouse. All he did was open the warehouse and take the stuff out and send it with the Jews to Jerusalem to build the temple. So that was a minor fulfillment of an end-time prophecy which will come in great detail because in the meantime, the treasures of God, the treasures of darkness, and the hidden riches of secret places are going to be revealed to Osiris. And the purpose of this is that he may know that God is God. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. This man, whoever he is, will have had a name change. God will have put a name of royalty upon him, whoever he is but he hasn't known God. God's worked with him. God's held his hand. God's gone before him and made straightened out the story so that the secret hidden treasures will be able to be found. And he has put the name, his own name, upon him. Though you have not known me. And the purpose of all this is for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. For the church, spiritual Israel first. So whatever God does through the Cyrus is done for the benefit of Israel, not for himself. I have surnamed you. God has put his own last name on this individual, whoever he is. I am the eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you though you have not known me. I'm the one that put the clothes on you. I'm the one that girded up your loins and put you to work and got you to see the things that needed to be seen. But you haven't known me. Now, for what purpose? That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that they may know around the world, in other words, east to west, that there is none beside me I am the eternal, and there is none else. That was not done by the original Cyrus, king of Persia. The whole world did not come to know who God is by the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But the final fulfillment is bigger than that.
That was a partial fulfillment. The final one is going to be done in such a way that everybody from east to west, all around the earth, are going to know that God is God and cannot deny it. They'll reject him, but they can't deny it. There is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the eternal, do all these things. Let the earth open, verse 8. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the eternal, have created it. So God is going to work to show that he is God, and he's going to use a man doing physical things to show the secret treasures and the hidden things of darkness. And we know from, Cy from Cyrus and Ezra 1 that this has to do with the temple service, with the bowls and the plates and the knives and the various things from the temple. So since Ezra shows that, I would have to conclude that the secret treasures and the hidden riches of secret places include the original temple vessels. There has to be a connection to who God is. It's not just treasures, not just gold. It has to show who God is. And they're tied very closely to here together between Daniel and the temple service of Belshazzar and Isaiah 44 and Ezra 1. We'll get to Ezra 1 next week. I keep saying that. Verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways, and he shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, says the eternal of hosts. Isaiah 55, come and drink wine and milk without money. A remnant is going to be brought together. They will be taken care of by God, by his ministry, and by this Cyrus. It's a very interesting story. I anticipate that this will happen fairly soon by someone whom God has called to do this. And they will aid and abet his church. So that is the story from Isaiah of a prophecy that will, has to, shall occur, just as written here. And if we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra, <laughs> Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah next week, uh, we'll see that story laid out before us. And there's a lot of detail there that I think you'll find interesting in relationship to the church today.